This is attorney Andy Markin telling attorney Mark J. Victor, we are the attorneys for freedom and you, my friends, are listening to the Peace Radicals podcast live from Freedom Fest. How's it going, Mark? Dude, I'm already tired. We've been knocking out Ugh. podcasts. I've been on other people's podcasts. We are surrounded by so many crazy pro-freedom people. It's its just wonderful. I'm having an awesome time. Haven't found anybody who disagrees with rule number one or rule number two yet. But Love it. Well, yeah. let's keep it going. Why don't you start out with a summary of what this movement's all about? Yeah, so Live In, Let Live is a global peace movement. And uh, it really is uh, very consistent with the phrase live and let live. If you don't like that phrase, you're not going to like anything that I say here but, today. But Mark, have you ever met anybody who takes a staunch anti-live and let live position? I've, I've yet to meet that I'm person. I'm so waiting for that. No, I don't like that phrase. And my response... I don't like to let people live. Or... Yeah, is it the live part you're bothered by or the let live part you're bothered by? But anyways, if you like that phrase, and you probably do, which means you're reasonable, you're going to love the live and let live global peace movement, which is already underway. There's two rules. Rule number one, we also call our legal principle. The legal principle is pretty simple. Just don't be an aggressor. What do we mean by that? Well, there are different ways you can aggress. One way is to initiate force against another person or their property. Now, this is different than responding to another person's initiation. We call that self-defense. That doesn't violate rule number one. Another way you violate rule number one is by engaging in fraud or engaging in coercion. And the final way that you violate rule number one, at least in a serious way, is putting another person at a substantial risk of harm. Said another way, don't do anything that puts another person in danger. That's the legal principle, and what we're saying is all laws should be consistent with the legal principle. Now, this legal principle applies to everybody. We don't care what color your skin is, where you were born, if you love God or you don't believe in God, or if you're uh, rich or poor, or what language you speak, or who you love, doesn't matter. Nobody gets a free pass. Nobody gets to be an aggressor. This also applies... What if I, what if I form a little group, Mark? Well, thanks for asking that question, Andrew. If you form a little group, you still don't get to violate the legal I, principle. But, but what if I form a big group? Yeah, and why would anything change if it was a big group or a corporation or the biggest group of all, the government? <gasps> That's right. Gasp. Even the government. They shouldn't be a special pass for the government. Even the government shouldn't get to aggress against any person or their property. That's rule number one. You are the iron-fisted dictator of your body, your property, your money, your time. And you should be able to do anything you want with these things as long as you don't violate rule number one, the legal principle. So if somebody's not violating the legal principle, leave them alone. In fact, if you don't leave them alone, you are violating the legal principle. So this is mandatory. The only thing left is rule number two, the suggested rule, the optional rule, the one we want to try to convince you to follow. This is our moral principle. We like to explain this with the simple phrase, be a good human. How about you just be a good human? You're free to blow this off and say, no, Mark, I don't want to be a good human. But we're going to try to convince you. You probably have a pretty good idea what we mean by being a good human. But in case you need some guidance, we have some aspirational values that we're pushing. Let me tell you about them. Open-mindedness on every issue. 
tolerance. Let's be tolerant. Other people live differently however they want to live. As long as they're not violating rule number one, let them live how they want to live. Voluntary kindness towards other people, not forced kindness. The kind of kindness that you do because you want to, because you choose to. That's voluntary kindness. How about civility towards other human beings? We don't have to call other people names or yell and scream. Can we agree to disagree? There are hard questions in the world. Let's be civilized towards each other. How about building high levels of trust with other human beings? That's how you get a good relationship, by earning a high level of trust, not a low level of trust. And being committed to things like truth and facts and rational thought. The reason we care about this stuff here is because our goals in this space as a peace movement is to optimize human happiness and well-being and to minimize suffering. So if you disagree with rule number two, that's fine. You're not a live and let liver. The only thing you need to do to be a live and let liver is to agree with rule number one and rule number two. And we would defend your right to disagree with rule number two. In other words, we would defend your legal right to be a peaceful jerk. Yes, absolutely. You get to be a peaceful jerk. You're not part of our crowd, but you should be left alone. We can't use you at that point. Yeah, so the live and let live movement is already underway it's a global peace movement it hasn't officially kicked off but we got chapters all over the world right now this is not a discussion group we are trying to get things done globally that's our community now we got 10 countries in africa lots of chapters in europe chapters in new zealand in australia in canada and throughout the united states Go to liveandletlive.org and be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Nice. Okay, well, here's Andy's abridged version. Bring it, man. Rule number one, it's mandatory. Don't hurt me and don't steal my stuff. And that applies to all individuals and all groups, even governments. That's right, even governments. Rule number two, it's optional, but we're going to highly encourage it as part of our movement. Don't be a jerk. Be a good human. Yeah. Let's all get along here. Life is short. All right, here we go. We got a great guest. We got Michael Heiss. He's the founder and chair of the Mises Caucus. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for having me. Why don't you start by introducing yourself and uh, what you do with the Mises? So I'm essentially the CEO of the caucus. So I'm kind of the uh, strategic lead, uh, come up with uh, the plans of what what we're going to do, how we're going to execute those plans, uh, you know, make uh, hires to the team, set forth the agenda, all that kind of stuff. We should say also that the Mises Caucus is what you might call a subset of the Libertarian Party. It's a group of Libertarians in the Libertarian Party. And the Mises name comes from a very famous economist, Ludwig von Mises, who was part of the Austrian School of Economics, and uh, a school we like very much here over at Live and Let Live. And uh, there was just some dispute between the Mises Caucus and the Greater Libertarian Party that I'm eager to hear about. Tell us about the dispute. The juicy stuff. Let's hear about the the disputes. Well, to put it simply, there's been a really big divide, I would say, between the Libertarian Party and the broader liberty movement for quite some time. Uh, And if I had to point to an example, I would say, you know, Ron Paul is kind of, I would say, the archetype of the liberty movement as we understand it. Um, You know, he's the one who, if you are 40 or below or 45 or below and you're a libertarian, chances are it's probably because of Ron Paul. Uh, And and so he, he really represents that movement. But the uh, Libertarian Party 
uh, is kind of gone in a different direction um, and not always really even embraced Ron Paul. And there's been leadership even who, uh, you know, it was fashionable to say that Ron Paul's a racist or, you know, uh, he's just a Republican or or any of this kind of stuff, which, uh, you know, really uh, upset a lot of people in that wider liberty movement who credit him for being libertarian in the first place. Uh, or in investigating the, the philosophy of liberty. So I would say the spirit of the Mises Caucus is that Ron Paul revolution taking the Libertarian Party back to its roots uh, and, and uh, you know, re- getting back to principle, recapturing that, and uh, coming up with a long-term strategy to follow that is both radical in principle but realistic in practice that, uh, you know, for maybe the first time in the entire history of the party having a long-term plan. And to be fair, um, there's probably some listeners and uh, people who are watching actually this podcast who have no idea what the Libertarian Party is about. Right, right, right. That that was what I was about to say was let's start from the basics to people who may not even understand what the Libertarian Party is, what's the the nature of the dispute between the subsect of the Libertarian Party. I think it's a fair thing to say, and you correct me if I get this wrong, I think it's a fair thing to say that the Libertarian Party is made up of people who agree with rule number one as I just explained it. That is the essence, maybe that's the sum total of what the Libertarian Party is about, notwithstanding how horribly it's been presented in, in uh, the last several decades. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the non-aggression principle in property rights, self-ownership. Yeah, that's exactly right, which is exactly what we've explained as the live and let live legal principle. Rule number one. So, so Rule number one. So the Libertarian Party does not include the live and let live moral principle, which is our rule number two. Would you agree with that? Not formally. I mean, I, I think we uh, have a very similar outlook to you of that, you know, if we're going to be the exemplars of, of this message, we have to set that example and we have to act right and be the beacons for other people. So, you know, you want to set a high standard. Uh, you want to encourage cooperation. You want to encourage civility. You want to encourage all of these things and lead with example. But at the end of the day, libertarianism isn't it's, it's concerned with, like I said, self-ownership and property rights. It's not concerned necessarily about controlling your thoughts. Right. Um, and, and so I think the best way to go about that is instead of wagging your finger at people and saying, well, this is what we're about and this is what we have to do, is you just exemplify it and, and people take it from there. Yeah, but to be fair, somebody could completely reject rule number two or our moral principle, as I explained it here, be a good human. Someone could say, I'm not interested in that. I'm a bad human. I, I'm a jerk. I'm closed-minded. I'm intolerant. I'm uncivilized. I don't care about building high levels of trust. But I do scrupulously comply with rule number one. Uh, I don't think you could have a bone to pick with such a libertarian, right? No, I mean, not if they're within the non-aggression principle, then they have a seat at the table because that is the foundation of the philosophy. And, and we're, we're trying to set the bounds of the appropriate use of force in society as manifested through the state and shrinking that. And so I think the more that we get away from that and start getting into telling people how to think, right. um, we're, we're getting away from our, our mandate. We're getting away from the core of what we're, we're here to do. Um, so, again, I, I think we have to... Uh, live our principles, live our values, do that, uh, be an example in that way, while also pushing forward the, as you call, rule one or the non-aggression principle and and, uh, see through the implications of that rule in how the state violates that rule uh, on basically every level of society. Does the average person who's who's kind of assessing libertarianism take the time to see how the average practitioner of libertarianism or the people at the forefront of the movement are actually 
exemplifying good values, good moral values? And I think the answer is probably no. Because, and I, I know the answer is probably no because, uh, like, we, for example, we have um, Ron Paul being just slandered as a racist and everything like that. It's easier to, like, rather than actually look at what the person is doing, to take a position on something rather than, like... If the libertarian movement said something about morality and made a statement that morality is important, but equally important is that we don't mandate morality. Equally important is that we don't mandate morality, uh, but that doesn't mean that morality isn't still important. There's no message like that coming from the libertarian party, right? I mean, not, not officially, but as far as what you're saying, I think that people do have the opportunity to kind of choose their leaders, so to speak. You know, there, there is enough of a, a liberty market today where, you know, whether it's podcasts or whether it's YouTube channels or all of this kind of thing, there's enough media out there where people have plenty of choices to make uh, and, and where they want to put their attention and their energy and their time. So the question from that perspective then is, well, who are the leaders that are emerging and, and what is their conduct like? And maybe that has something, like, that conduct might have something to do with why people are following them, why they are gaining the most ground. And from my perspective, it's people like Ron Paul, it's people like Tom Woods, it's people like Dave Smith. That seem to be the people who are um, most ingratiating themselves into the culture beyond the in-group of libertarians. Well, those people slandering him as a racist and just labeling him as a racist presumably haven't taken the time to like see how he exemplifies the val- like moral values and how he... And, and how he practice, just how he lives his life, and how he like his policy preferences and things like that. Or it's, it could be worse, and they're just dishonest. Yeah, I mean, very likely many of them are, are dishonest actors. But you could avoid a lot of these issues if Ron Paul took a stance and said, "Hey, look, racism is stupid. Racism is real bad." I would defend your legal right to be a peaceful jerk, a peaceful racist, because this is a more important principle that we don't ingrain morality into the law. But I can still say something about the morality of it, and I feel like libertarian candidates um, kind of historically dodge those types of positions. Well, I think uh, Ron has spoken to that. You know, I mean, he is he has explicitly talked about racism as just being anti-individualist and, and toxic collectivism. Um, so I actually do think it's out there. But again, once you start kind of changing the entire uh, mode of being of the party or of, of the, the general messaging to kind of veer away from our core principles to these more social aspects of how we would prefer people act, even if they're not violating the non-aggression principle, again, you're starting to get away from what we're here to do, which is minimize the violence of the state. That's right. And to drive that point home or to bring the other side of the coin here, one could be an actual racist and still a good libertarian so long as this is a peaceful racist. Am I correct about that? Yeah, I mean, they might not be the most popular. They might not be the most popular, but (laughs) there's nothing about... We could probably get an economist on here that says somebody who has, like, racist business practices will suffer horrendous economic loss because of it, but it's completely consistent with libertarianism to do so. That's right. There's nothing about libertarianism that excludes the genuine racist, so long as the racist is peaceful. Yeah, I mean, non-aggression principle, self-ownership, that is the foundation of it, and everything after that is is secondary. So, yeah. So tell us about this sort of infight between the Mises Caucus and the general libertarian party. What were some of the issues? You keep just trying to get back to the drama, Mark. I like the drama. (laughs) Give us the drama. Well... So, 
I mean, it goes back about five years, and, and it really has to do with we wanted to radically change how the party messages uh, and how it brands, how it presents itself. We wanted to implement a strategy, which they didn't seem to have. You wanted to change from what to what? Well, they... Are you familiar with, uh, like, red pill, blue pill, like this kind of terminology? Yep. From uh, the Matrix. Well, from the Matrix, but uh, Michael Malice has really popularized a lot of this kind of uh, vernacular, and, and uh, I would say that the messaging of the, the Libertarian Party has been largely blue-pilled, and what I mean by that specifically is, is um, it's one thing to have Libertarian principles, but they've still been, in many ways, beholden to the mainstream narrative that, that underlies the state action. So even if you say, hey, I'm going to give a Libertarian principle, but you, you don't challenge the narrative that is that is supporting the policy that's in place, it makes it very easy for people to dismiss your policy because you're playing it safe by sticking to the mainstream narrative. Ex- example, please. Example. So so a good example would be like like BLM. Like Joe, Joe Jorgensen got a lot of uh, pushback when she said, you know, it's not enough to be not racist. We have to be actively anti-racist. Uh, and this sounds like something that uh, the woke horde would say, you she's, know, it, she's trying. She's trying to bring in a moral principle which has no place in libertarianism. Correct. And where the where the blue pill thing comes in is, I would, you know, if you look into Black Lives Matter, the the movement and the organization, they're all Marxists. Now, I'm not saying that every single person who who was uh, supportive of Black Lives Matter is a is a Marxist. But again, they have they are Marxists. They're open. They're on video about what their goals are in pushing forward a Marxist agenda. So then they set the they set the narrative of, well, this isn't actually about Marxism. It's about, you know, equality and, you know, ignore the riots and, and, and uh, you know, that's okay. And this is about systemic racism, you know, and these are the kind of dialectics that they employ to get people to bite into the narrative to then support what ultimately is Marxist ends. Yeah. So if you don't challenge that narrative and, and get people to understand that that is what is going on, then you you essentially don't even understand what's, the tactics that your enemies are employing against you. What's the red pill version of this? Basically saying they can say whatever, that BLM can say whatever they want as long as they're not violent? So I would say that to be red pill means to, to see through the mainstream narrative and understand that it is carefully crafted uh, in such a way as to keep the existing power structure in place. The red pill gets you out of the matrix, right? Yes. The, the blue pill puts you back into the matrix. And so there's sort of this illusion that you're following if you take the blue pill. Put me back in. But, you know, Joe Jorgensen's statement, if it was simply limited to, look, racism is stupid, it's wrong, we shouldn't be racist. If you, if you limited it to that, it would be perfectly appropriate in the live and let live movement, but perfectly inappropriate in the libertarian movement. Right. And I, and I, but I think the bigger problem is that, one, she didn't do that, but two, she specifically adopted the narrative and adopted the language of BLM, which as I outlined, is Marxist. The problem know, and, there is it brings a philosophy that violates rule number one, or as you would say, the non-aggression principle. Right. Like, yeah. if I didn't know the background of the founders of BLM, the uh, the term, just in a vacuum, the term anti-racist sounds pretty good. Yeah. Right. On, and, that, and that's the allure of the narrative. You know, you have a, a pretty peachy-sounding narrative that on its face nobody can disagree with. Like, what are you, pro-racist? Right. You know, and but but when that is being employed in the service of collectivist ends, this this is what it means to basically be a useful idiot in the very real sense of the term. I don't mean that as a derogatory term, but that's why they employ these tactics: is they get people to bite into the surface level of the narrative and then get them acting in service towards them their ends without necessarily even realizing 
that that is what the the ends sought are. So so the critique of Jorgensen here is basically, oops, you put your arm around people who have a um, a problematic agenda too quickly without being critical. But rather rather than just looking into the actual movement, you just spouted some some talking points. Right, and I think it was the safe thing to do because, like we're discussing, the surface uh, nature of the language is. Whoa! I can't say I'm 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 this because what, maybe they'll think I'm pro-racist. But she then wasted a huge opportunity to tell the truth in a courageous manner in a moment when the country was on fire, and and you know it wasn't it was less than four months later where even Joe Biden was saying you know oh well you know BLM is kind of questionable and all that and then at that point the whole narrative is lost and the bravery that you could have had at the beginning to stand for what was right is lost. Has Jorgensen and, modified her position since then or is uh, uh, she? I mean, she said that it was a, a staffer who was doing her social media and that she wasn't controlling <laughs> her social media. But this happened like so. This she pointed the finger. Times. Did she disavow the claim, though? No. Well, see, there were actually. Well, actually, one of our aspirational values is following truth and facts and logic and reason and and wherever it leads you. And, and so she had an excellent opportunity here to to correct the record. I would say she made two mistakes here. Number one mistake is bringing in an ethical position, even one we like and agree with, bringing in an ethical position into libertarianism. Into a, into a movement that's only concerned with rule number one. That's right. That was mistake number one. Mistake number two was to hitch your ethical position to the Black Lives Matter movement, which you are saying, and I, to be fair, and to maybe a promo here, I would love to get somebody to come on Peace Radicals who is in the Black Lives Matter movement so I could understand it better because I don't have a good understanding of it. So take that invitation and give us a shout through the liveandletlive.org website. I would love to get you on Peace Radicals. But you're saying the message she was hooking onto the Black Lives Matter isn't even a message about the ethical principle that it's not good to be a racist, but comes with the extra baggage of we should violate rule number one to accomplish a whole bunch of other things. Yes, and I would say that people people don't, generally speaking, people don't act out the premise that their political philosophy is the thing that's most important to them. They, they act out the premise that other things, maybe their job or maybe their culture or maybe their family, and the narrative that they buy into is the thing that animates their actions. Yeah. Uh, and, and so if you don't challenge that narrative, then people are going to continue to act the same way. So I think it's very, very important that we as libertarians have our own narrative. And, and essentially what she did was try to play it safe and, and repeat their narrative back to them in an attempt to make them feel safe and then inject libertarian principles. But it didn't work. Spike Cohen, the vice presidential uh, candidate in 2020, he's been great. But he, he employed this tactic as well. And then, again, six months later, the BLM groups that were thought to be different from the rest and they're supportive and we can work with them, they all turned their back on them. I think it was the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. He, he followed the fact pattern of that. It was pretty clearly self-defense for, for Kyle Rittenhouse. And then the, the, the BLM groups that he was working with prior all turned their back on him. You know, so he, he didn't he didn't challenge the narrative, even if he espoused the principle. But you got to do both because people bite down on the narrative before they do anything else. Since you brought up Rittenhouse, Andy and I did a long analysis of the Rittenhouse situation. And here's the link for it right here. Boom. If you're interested in our thoughts on Rittenhouse, check it out right there. And you're not going to get some sort of political hack job of us taking a position with the R's or the D's or anything going on in the protests or anything. You're going to get boring, objective, cold, 
calculated legal analysis because that's what attorneys should be doing. From two criminal defense lawyers who are in the trenches of defending cases like self-defense cases. So, okay, back back to the Mises and, and the beef with the greater libertarian party. There was another beef going on about abortion. Tell us about that situation. So about a month and a half ago, we had our most recent national convention for the libertarian party, which is where we select our leadership, where we uh, change the bylaws, change the platform and all of that sort of thing. In the Mises Caucus, we swept the leadership. We completely swept all of the leadership. And we also had an agenda on what to do with the platform. And part of that agenda included uh, removing the abortion plank, which uh, they had a plank on abortion in the party, and it was explicitly pro-choice. Um, you know, it basically said that the, the wording of it was something to the effect of like, you know, we understand that there's people on both sides of this, so we just ask that the government stay out of the matter, which is pro-choice. Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm an anarchist, so this isn't necessarily my framework, but if you are a pro-life, small government minarchist, um, you know, that framework, they kind of have an argument that, that uh, you know, the role of the government is to protect life. So therefore, again, it's not even my personal position, but... I'm speaking from the Libertarian Party is supposed to represent all libertarians from pro-life anarchists to pro-life minarchists to, to everything. So we were of the, of the opinion that that plank should be removed in an effort to actually represent the wider libertarian movement and not take a side against one part of that movement. And the people who were uh, pro-choice and trying to basically enforce their preferences were very, very angry about this. Well, so pro-choice, just my gut reaction is pro-choice just kind of inherently sounds more pro-freedom, right? It, it sounds right. like, okay, we're giving more choices about what to do with the fetus, and that's before you even get to the property rights analysis. But go ahead, Mark. Yeah, let's frame the crux of the dispute here on this point. Why is it that libertarians are divided on this issue. And the reason, at least from my perspective, that libertarians are somewhat divided, I don't think they're equally divided, but they're divided on this issue, is, is the question of at what point from conception to birth, at what point in there does the non-aggression principle start protecting the unborn baby? Correct. Some people say, well, it's right at conception. That's the point at which the non-aggression principle applies. And some people say, no, later on is the point at which it applies. Now, to put this in live and let live language, I would simply substitute out the non-aggression principle and substitute in the live and let live legal principle. So that's the dispute. And I, I would say reasonable minds disagree on this point. Are you with me there? They, yeah, they disagree on that. But I think there's another level of disagreement within the libertarian philosophy. Because, again, the framework that we apply to policy and, and, and to uh you know, government action is, like I said, it's self-ownership and non-aggression. Um, so then you kind of get into a, like when it comes to abortion, you kind of get into a, 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 a tautology of whose property right trumps whose. It, well, it's a question and, of does the property right, is the fetus a self-owner to begin do, with? Does it even get a property right? Right. And my opinion um, is that in this sense, libertarianism can't even address the issue because what you have to the, the question of whose property right trumps whose, your answer to that seems to be informed by something other than libertarian. This is a science question. Well, it's a science question, but it's also a morality question. Yep. And, 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 um, or a religious question yeah, for some people. Or, or a religious question. And all of these are things that inform their opinion on this issue that are outside of the bounds of libertarian philosophy. So I don't even know that the, the philosophy can answer it definitively. So, right. And so I'm, I'm with you there. But let me let me push back on one thing that went by rather quickly. Is you said, well, I'm an anarchist, so this isn't really my discussion. 
I'm not sure that gets you out of the discussion. Oh, no, no. I said it's not my discussion. I said it's not my position. Not his position. Yeah. It's not your position. Yeah. But it, what what is it, in your view, would be the anarchist position? And when you say anarchist, I think we could refine that a little bit by mm -hmm. saying anarcho-capitalist. Yes. Is that fair? Because yes. there are different varieties of anarchists. So what, in your view, would be the anarcho-capitalist solution here that's any different than the problems we're addressing with libertarianism? Well, there's, the, there's, there's kind of two answers to that, in my opinion. There's the pure form principle answer of there is no state, so it's pro-choice by default. I think that... But, but let's talk about that position for a moment. It's pro-choice by default. We're neighbors, and uh, let's say we're living in anarchy. There's no state. And um, somebody on your property is pregnant and decides uh, in, the, in the first 10 weeks, let's just say, you know, I'm going to have an abortion. And I take the position that, you know, look, we're all anarchists here, but we all agree that everybody's in charge of themselves and nobody can aggress, right? Anarchists, anarcho-capitalists agree. But I say you can't have that abortion because you are now aggressing against another person. And, and like any other time when there's aggression against somebody, I'm going to defend the rights of that third party. Do I get to charge over onto your property and stop the abortion as an anarchist? Uh... I would say no. I, I mean, I don't think so. But in practice, how I think this would play out yeah. is is that the, the, the principle and how this would play out in reality, I think, is decentralization. So I think you would have norms at a local level or a county level uh, that, that yeah. essentially function as laws. And you could have pro-choice societies over here. You could have socialist societies over there. You could have... Your yeah, local community would have solved this issue before people even agreed to live there. And, and that's but, why I'm drawing kind of the distinction between the pure form... But now, uh, now we're yeah. in a local community. So let me tell you what the live and let live solution is here. And you can tell me your reaction to it. So what the live and let live solution is, it starts with the idea that, look, reasonable minds disagree on how the legal principle applies here. And, when, and there, are, there are other issues like this as well, right? For example, animal rights is one of these issues. What is the age of consent? We all agree competent adults can do things, and if you're not a competent adult, but what's an adult? What's competent? These are things reasonable minds disagree on. And so whenever you get a situation where reasonable minds disagree, then we like to let the smallest jurisdiction possible, like Correct. the local community. And the reason this makes sense are several. Number one, you're not entitled to your personal interpretation of the legal principle. What you are entitled to is at least a reasonable interpretation. And if reasonable minds are disagreeing, then whichever decision within that realm of reasonableness is selected by the local community, you get a reasonable construction of the principle. But secondarily, more imported from economics, what we get now is competing laboratories between small communities. The transaction cost of moving from one community to another, of failing to do business, refusing to do business with a community that selected a rule you didn't like, these are easy. And so now we're getting market forces on the, what the local decision was, and, and then we can let the ro local jurisdictions modify their rules according. Now, you yeah, like this Yeah, when, when Roe v. Wade was recently overturned by the Dobbs case from the United States Supreme Court, imagine how much less panic and fervor and craziness there would have been if the decision for legal abortion was relegated to the lowest possible jurisdiction, like a township, like a municipality, right. like if the transaction cost, if I was now living in a pro-life uh, jurisdiction, the transaction cost was to drive seven and a half minutes to the next municipality in order to get my abortion. It, it would have 
totally taken the panic out of that moment, right? So I think that's kind of what we're talking about is relegation to the lowest possible. You, you agree with that, right? Yeah, I mean, okay. I, th- I think this is basically what I had said, that in it practice it's, it's going to be decentralization. It is, but so let me, let me just, now that we're at the same page here, if you're in agreement that the local community gets to make a rule, is this consistent with the anarchist position? Well, the anarchist position, I think, has to do with, with the state. So, like... Well, but let's talk about what's going to happen. So the local community is going to get together. Raise your hand if you like rule A. Raise your hand if you like rule B. We selected rule A. That's the rule, whether you like it or not. Now, you might not call that a government. And if you don't call that a government, you can still survive with the anarchists. I would say it's norms. Okay, but who's enforcing it? Well... In the absence of a state, it could be insurance agencies, it could be competing law enforcement uh, agencies, it could be uh, competing uh, dispute resolution organizations. I think a lot of this would be handled through insurance. But if we can call that, you know, the, the, to- the people in the town get together to select a rule. Mm-hmm. And raise your hand if you're for rule A, raise your hand if you're for rule B. So far, no problem, right? Yeah. And then they select rule A. Rule A is the rule in our in our geographic location. Now, who's going to enforce it is a different question. Can we call that a government right there? That that pr- pr- I would process? I would draw I would draw a distinction between the state and government. Okay, fair enough. You I know like what I mean? That. And that's and, fine. Yeah, and and uh, I think I think we all want quote unquote government of some sort, which is separate from the state. Okay. The, the state uh, being a monopoly. Some some of your libertarian friends are cringing right now to hear you say that. No, I don't I, think I so. It. I no, think I he's on so. the what, what do you on... think self government is? It's discipline. You know what I mean? Like self government is basically the logical end of of anarcho capitalism. As much as we can, right? Because there are some quite like for example uh, you can say, look, self-government, uh, I decide an eight-year-old is, is able to consent, and now uh, a 50-year-old is having sex with an eight-year-old, and, and what's the problem? Eight-year-old, do you agree? Sign on the dotted line, here's a lollipop, let's have sex. I think that we want to say to that transaction, sorry, yeah. even, this is not a, a, an adult, and we're going to protect the eight-year-old. Yeah, I mean, the, the anarchist position is no rule. I mean, it's a Greek word for no rulers. That's not necessarily the same thing as no rules. Okay, fair enough. And, and this is why I'm saying norms but instead I, of laws. I think what happens here when we get down to the nitty-gritty here, yeah. there's not that much distinction between what you might call an, an anarcho-capitalist position, a voluntarist position, and a real libertarian position. I think we all get to exactly, or, or what I'll now I, say. I have, li- to, I have to admit, at the start of this, when I heard about there was a recent schism in the libertarian party between the caucus and the greater libertarian party, my response initial thoughts were the same they always were which is oh great a bunch of freedom activists who essentially agree on all of the important things most of quibbling about yet another little stupid insignificant thing when we should all be uniting yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's the reason this is a problem is because libertarianism is missing rule number two. This creates all kinds of problems. Since libertarianism does not have a moral rule, libertarianism doesn't have an easy time explaining the difference between a moral issue and a legal issue because we got to get people, and you know this, when people get to the point where they can say, for example, I find prostitution or drug use totally immoral, terrible, bad, I try to discourage people, but 
I think it should be legal because I don't get to force my morale. Okay, now they're one of us. What are we really saying? Ah, they get the difference between a legal rule and a moral rule. Yeah. Well, it makes it easier to have that discussion if you have a moral rule. And essentially, we're, we're nerding out like on the, the the specifics of theory right now, which is a little bit different than like acting in the world as it is, and and it's a lot easier to uh, agree across the spectrum of libertarianism when the world is as it is. Right. You know, we don't we, we don't really live in a situation where the the details of the theory that we're discussing are anywhere within the bounds of reality. So we're just kind of nerding out. But I'll say another thing that I think that contributes towards some of the splits is that libertarianism is essentially a uh, an umbrella term. For, for a spectrum of thought from classical liberals to like anarcho-capitalists. Mm. And sometimes there is a, a conflict in the first principles between some of these things. Maybe, maybe not. It depends who you're talking to. My good friend, uh, economics professor Walter Block would mm -hmm. disagree. He would say, no, no, no. A libertarian is somebody who agrees with the non-aggression principle. Period. There's period. no, there's no play in any of that. But, but I think, Hang on. I think let me let me push back a little bit because okay. that that would be like saying that classical liberals don't fit into the spectrum of libertarianism. If they Be if they think it's okay to violate the non-aggression principle, then they don't. So. At Again, if you were to take the, the non-aggression principle to its complete logical conclusion, that, that is anarcho-capitalism. I agree with you that it's the same thing. The libertarian that, position and the anarcho-capital position are the same position. Correct. But does that, in principle, but does that mean that minarchists shouldn't have a seat at the table because they're technically an aberration? It, it depends. I don't care how big you want a government. I don't care if you're for government at all. My question is, are you in favor of the government violating the non-aggression principle or the live and let live legal principle? Because if you think your government should not violate the legal principle, welcome to the club. I got no issue with you at all. The, yeah, the issue is if we allow people into the libertarian movement, if we call them libertarians or if we call them live and let livers or whatever, pick your freedom movement, that say it's okay in some instances to violate the non-aggression principle, it's going to not only confuse the movement, not only make people not sure what our message is, not only throw off our principles, um, it compromises our message completely. Absolutely. But I think there's two areas where there is a spectrum. Whether you're a classical liberal or you're an ANCAP, there's not too many libertarians from either of those camps that are like, yeah, we should, we should continue with the drug war. You know, like there's there's pretty much a consensus across the spectrum for most things where where the difference in the first principles seems to create some questions between the two, like like minarchists and anarchists is abortion and, and immigration, you know, and and I'm saying that because of that fact, because of that difference in first principles between the two and we're representing both as a libertarian party, we have to account for that in the form of acknowledging that there is a spectrum of allowable libertarian thought within these issues. Yeah, I think that what happens with abortion is we're working from the same principle. The question is, it's a property rights dispute, right? Yes. Because as you know, you can't talk about who's aggressing until you first figure out who owns what. Right. And, and with the abortion question, we're trying to figure out who owns what, in essence. Does the, does the fetus own itself or not? If it doesn't, then you do whatever you want. If it does, then you, when you do something to the fetus, you're violating the principle. So it's a, it's a factual dispute about whether the rule 
the legal principle or the non-aggression principle is even in the first instance applicable here. So I don't think there's any reason, in fact, when you heard me explain rule number one, I don't think I was ambiguous at all about saying there are no exceptions to violating rule number one. But we're trying to encourage people to adopt rule number two. To be clear, I'm not saying that there's an exception. I'm saying that there's a disagreement within the spectrum between classical liberal and uh, anarchists on whether or not that is a violation of the net. Yeah, how yeah. the rule applies in right. this situation. Yeah. In, in all, there are other questions. There, how do we implement the rule? How do right, we right. Trans- that's, that's what I was about to address. I dissent with what both of you just said because I think there are certain allowances and certain exceptions to aggression that we should tolerate as freedom advocates. And that's when we're talking about questions of implementation and transition. Well, I, but those, to me, don't violate the rule. There are, there are disagreements on how no, we transition. No, there's de- no, there is definitely violations of the non-aggression principle if we say that you should tax people 14% instead of 15%. Yeah. There's a certain allowable but that, but, amount of aggression that we should be in favor of as freedom advocates as long as it's being used in the purpose of transition. Yes, but I think we could first agree that taxation violates the rule. Yes. If you don't agree yes. with that, yes. you're not in the club. Okay, so... So taxation violates the rule. Then a sub-question. We're, we're taxed right now, let's just say 50% or, or more. What do we do to get from here to there? There are lots of disagreements there. Do we make taxes zero today or do we gradually move? What do we get rid of first? How do, those are transition questions. Those are not differences on the philosophy. Those are differences in how do we travel from where we are to where we want to go. Those I think people have lots of disagreements on. But we got to be careful to not put those in the same box as a disagreement on the philosophy. Oh, no yeah. question. Yeah, but at sure. the same time, my point is that you're going to want to allow us a freedom act advocate, you're going to want to allow a certain amount of state aggression in the service of transitioning us from point A to point B. Okay, there are disagreements in transition. Not There are not exceptions to the non-aggression principle, although it's sort of fun to talk about some of those cases where the right thing to do is to aggress, right? There are a few of them on the edges there and how to deal with that. If you're interested in that, this is all in my book, which will be coming out fairly soon, the really, really hard edge questions. Michael, can you please plug whatever you want to plug um, and send people to whatever website you want to send them to? Absolutely. You can... Uh if you enjoyed this conversation, if you want to get involved in the Libertarian Party and uh, you know bring that Ron Paul revolution home to the Libertarian Party, you can go to TakeHumanAction.com. You can sign up there for our emails. But if you sign up for our emails, you're not just signing up for our emails. Your information is going to get routed to our state organizers, and they're going to they're going to contact you and try to get you involved. Do you have to actually read Human Action Mises's treatise to be part of the Mises Caucus? <laughs> no, but we'll try to distill it for you at the very least. Just uh, like they don't have to sit through your book in order to be part of the Live and Let Live. <laughs> and, and, you know, what's the deal with Mises and opera houses? I think Mises thought the government should be running opera houses. Am I wrong about this? So Mises was a classical liberal, and he yeah. had and he had some ideas that would not fly in the modern libertarian movement. I mean, I remember in his book Liberalism reading that he, uh, you know, he. He was in favor of the the uh, the League of Nations at the time, under the, the guise of, of like we're gonna have to we're we're gonna create a global cosmopolitan cosmopolitan liberal order. Good in as theory, long as it's not coercive. Uh, good in theory, as long as the rules not violated, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, the League of Nations became the uh, the UN, so they violated the rule. Right. But, but in theory, we don't have to be against globalism so long as we are anchored to nobody gets to violate the rule. Yes. Yeah. So anyways, excellent conversation. Can I can I get a commitment from you right here on the Peace Radicals podcast to take a look at liveandletlive.org? And if you like what you see, check the box and be a live and let liver. 
Absolutely. Based totally on our agree. conversation today, I'd be shocked if you found anything on there that you disagree with. I think, with. I think you you're right. You won't. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like I said, most of these freedom people in this camp are all on the same side. And yep. We should be disagreeing about little little things we on the fringes less and work together more. Yeah. We've been talking to Michael Heiss, who's the founder and chair of the Mises Caucus. Check out what he's up to. Also check out liveandletlive.org for this podcast and many more. Going to do it with us, Michael. This is the Hawaiian Shaka. We use it for our movement. We always leave with a bam on the Hawaiian Shaka. That's right. All attorney right. Andy Mark and tell attorney Mark J. Victor. We are the Peace Radicals. Peace! Peace.